0: that moment that you start uh, you you are starting the service and walking around and you realize that this might be the Sunday that we have the most visitors we've had in a, probably a year uh, and you realize that you're going to be preaching on arguably the hardest passage in the entire Bible. <laughs> uh, it's that moment, it's moments like that that you actually get to apply the passage you're preaching on before you start preaching the passage. You'll see that as we go along. I am normally not a thematic or topical preacher. We, I usually go verse by verse through books of the Bible, and so I just mark it up to the Lord. You know, I was at the next verse, and these people came at that point, so it works out that way. It works that way with thematic preaching and topical preaching, too. I'm preaching uh, thematically through uh, adoption passages. There's five passages that mention adoption, spiritual adoption in the Bible. And I'm giving context for each one of them. It's the concept of being God's child. And so we're dealing with those uh, uh, passages in the New Testament mostly. And one of the five is in Romans chapter 9. Uh, as much as I would love to preach on what Mark talked about in Romans eight thirty-one to 39, wouldn't everybody want me to preach on that passage? Uh, I needed to read eight thirty-one to 39 so you could have the context. But ultimately, we're focused on Romans chapter 9. And we're going to deal with some very difficult things today. Um, I think often... Or, people that uh, lean towards understanding and enjoying the sovereignty of God, we often take suffering and pains and tensions that we see in this world and we just kind of brush them aside. We kind of just don't even want to talk about them. We say, well, you know, you just need to trust God. Those that understand the sovereignty of God often don't feel the weight of the pain that's involved in living in a world that is under God's sovereign control but still is definitely feeling the effects of sin, correct? We often, we who are in the Reformed Christian faith, have a tendency to just kind of push those pains aside until we're brought to our knees by some kind of suffering in our own life, right? But ultimately, I think you're going to see today that you should sit under it. You're going to love this. You should sit under the pain. And you should actually feel the pain. Beloved, this is not an easy message to hear. But it's in God's Word. And God wants us to know it and understand it. Did you know that presently there are approximately 30 million orphans in this world? Not spiritual, but physical orphans in this world. They have either lost both parents by death or been abandoned by their living parents that can't afford them or don't want them, or are living in orphanages estranged from their parents, or they're living on the streets somewhere begging for food and practically starving to death. Thirty million of these children out of the 30 million orphans, only about 135,000 are adopted by American parents each year. With only 30 to 40,000 of them being international adoptions. What does that mean? There's a lot of orphans still out there. When I meditate on these numbers, I confess I'm often brought to tears. We are now in the uh in the throes of trying to bring Samuel home from China but in the process we're on every mailing list for every international adoption thing email list and we get tons of these emails. It got to the place where for a while we were like clicking delete clicking delete and not looking at them because we could not look at the picture After picture of these kids that were suffering. It hurts, doesn't it? Down syndrome babies that are just thrown and cast to the side because their parents don't want them. Not to mention the 40 to 50 million babies that are being murdered in their mother's wombs every year. You're like, oh, great, what a great sermon for me to come to today. Is the tension in your heart? The tension is in my heart. And it's only heightened when I contemplate it. And then when I contemplate the enormous amounts of money and material blessings that the American church has and enjoys. I was looking at this yesterday. Do you know know the average citizen in India makes $1,500 a year? a year. Do you know how much the average American median household income is? $54,000 a year. There's like this gigantic struggle going on in my soul. We are rich. Yet millions Are dying without parents? Being raised in orphanages? Are you feeling the tension yet? Do God's people really care? How is it that God cares? For the world's most vulnerable, when his bride is more concerned with their houses, their cars, their entertainment, their iPhones, and Starbucks. I'm speaking to myself too, trust me. Does God really care for the orphan? However, these transparent questions must never be used to send accusations at our God. The pain and the sadness that we observe daily on the news can never be used as an excuse to scream at God and say, Why? or blame Him for our sin. God is working. And he's always righteous in what he does. We may not understand all that he is doing, but he is never unrighteous. However, we as his bride need to wake up and ask ourselves, Are we reflecting the heart of our Savior and God when the most vulnerable of our world are being so mistreated and uncared for? And the church just sits by idly and says nothing. And does very little. These struggles in our heart over the mistreatment of the vulnerable should not just be brushed away and ignored. It should humble us and cause us to be more concerned for our neighbor. It should cause us to pray more for the hurting and the outcast. You no, know, it's funny. The law says give 10%. The Old Testament law says 10%. But we who are in the new covenant are not under that 10%. Why is it that the average Christian gives 2%? We're in the new covenant. <laughs> We've been adopted by God. We are His children. I don't want your money again. It's not about getting rich. I don't want a new building. I want to rescue children. I want to support more missionaries. I just don't think we really feel the weight of the problem we're too self-focused this tension of why bad things happen to the most vulnerable of God's creation is only one of the many tensions that arise in the mind of the believer when we contemplate God's sovereignty over the world. God is in control. But evil appears to be winning. Death is still affecting one out of every one people. As we track through the gospel in Romans... Major tensions start to develop in the mind of the genuine believer. Just like these tensions of the orphans and just like the evil that's happening in the world, these things rise up in our souls. In Romans 1:18 to3:20, we have the truth that every single person on the earth is born headed for hell. Condemned by their sinful condition. That's what you get in Romans 118 to 320. The pagan who has never heard the gospel still knows God exists. But they suppress the truth and come up with a God in their own mind, and He doesn't save them. They end up facing a just God one day if they don't repent. Even God's chosen people, the Jews, stand condemned because no amount of law-keeping, good works, or seeking to be a good person will save anyone. Fact. That's what 118 to 320 states. So what tension arises in our soul? It's obvious, isn't it? The vast majority of the world stands condemned under the righteous standards of God. The vast majority, including God's chosen people, the Jews. This means that out of approximately 7 billion people on this planet, every single one of them are born dead in sin, and most of them are headed towards hell. So what do we do with it? Do with it. This is the moment when everybody in the room's like, okay, move on. I think we could just sit there in that, couldn't we? Maybe we should. How many of you wake up thinking about this? How many of you? Go about your day thinking on this. How much is this what we meditate on? No, Mike, I want to be happy. (laughs) I can't think about that. These facts should cause him enormous grief in all of our souls. Enormous, we should be... I told Brenda this before. If you don't cry in this message, you haven't felt this message. You haven't really understood this message. That's how bad it is. Billions. Headed for eternal separation from God. I don't take pleasure in that. Do you? Then in Romans 3, 21 to 5, 21, we have the truth that all who trust in Christ, all who repent of their sin and trust in Christ, they are saved. They are declared right with God. All of their sins are paid for. And they are right with God through faith in Christ. That's a glorious truth, isn't it? But, he goes on in that same section to say that nothing that anyone can do can get them a right standing with God. In fact, he says, all religions that are based on what you do End up leading you to where? Hell. You are not saved by how good you are. But that's most of the population of the earth. Go on campus and do some surveys with us on Thursday nights. Ask them, why are you going to heaven? Number one answer. I'm a good person. If you could do the survey of the whole world, I think you would find the vast majority, well over six billion probably, believe it's because of their goodness that saves them. No amount of good works for their religion is going to save them. That's what the Bible says. Whether it's doing good works in Roman Catholicism, Mormonism, Islam, Hedonism, Buddhism, or any other works-based religion. They are all based on how good you are. But Romans 3, 21-5, states, you're not saved by that. So is the tension growing in your heart? And then in Romans 8, we have the truth of salvation. From justification to glorification. It's guaranteed for God's adopted children. The glory cannot... Or it can, rather, be counted on. We can trust in glory to come. We know God's going to glorify us. Why? Because if we believe in Him, He's declared us right, and glory is coming. How do we know? Mark just read it. It's a guarantee. The assurance of glorification for all those who are God's adopted children... Because God is working to accomplish it. God is good, isn't he? And all in the room that are saved say, Glory to God! Amen! Praise God! Right? Not because we think we're better. We're not worthy of it, are we? But he loves us. However, for the billions of people the lost glory is not promised. It is not what they have hoped for. Rather, they are fi- facing a terrifying future, separated from God. It's crushing, isn't it? If it's not crushing to you right now, you still don't get it. We're burdened, aren't we? We're thankful for our hope, but we agonize for the lost. These are weighty thoughts, aren't they? They're sobering thoughts. They're frightening thoughts. They're grieving thoughts. The reality of the lost world is almost too much to bear. Isn't it? And as Paul unfolds the gospel in Romans, this tension just continues to grow. More and more and more. How can this be? The church is relatively small, the Romans must have been thinking. Look at our city. Thousands upon thousands of people, and the church is relatively small. How can this be? And the church, the Messiah came from Israel. It's made up of mostly Gentiles. Where are God's chosen people? How can this be? That's where Paul is. How can we sit and rejoice in Romans 8:31 to 39, rejoicing in that truth, but also knowing what? That millions and billions are outside of that hope. Why was Jesus called a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief? This is it. At this point in the message, many of you might be thinking in your mind, okay, get on with it. Or you might be thinking, okay, give me a relief. You know what? I'm not going to give you any today, probably very little. And at this point you're saying, well, why in the world am I going to sit here? And the answer is, is because the hope of glory is far greater than anything that we endure here. And the joy that we have in Christ sustains us through the suffering and the grief that we face daily. Don't run from the pain. For if you run from that tension, you will not be the Christian That God wants you to be. This is the tension we live in. So the question is... Can God be trusted... If He promised these things to Israel... And the vast majority aren't embracing Him... Can God be trusted... If God promised us this glory, and yet the glory, that same glory that He promised to Israel, it appears that the vast majority of them aren't embracing it and won't get to enjoy it. Can we trust Him? Can we trust His word? And the answer is an emphatic, yes, we can trust Him. We can trust Him, but we will grieve through the process of trusting Him. As Mark read, our salvation is secure. Praise God. The believer who has chosen, been chosen by God cannot be separated from the love of Christ. But God made similar promises to, his, to Israel. And right now there's a partial hardening and many, 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 many of them are rejecting Him. This tension is most of God's people, Israel, are presently under the wrath of God. And yet God's word says he chose them to be his people. If God said he would provide salvation for the Jews, then why is it that a large majority of them are not being saved? And then we can apply it, obviously, right? Why doesn't God save everyone? You know how many times I hear this question? A pastor gets this question, I'm especially in Reformed circles. Why doesn't God save more? Why doesn't he save my father that I've been praying for over and over and over again? Why did my loved one die outside Christ? Do we get these questions? So what about everyone else? Especially the Jews who are God's chosen people. If We're going to trust in God to secure our salvation. Does that mean that he always keeps his promises? And the answer is, yes, he does. Ultimately, our hope is sure. For our salvation. If God is a God of His Word, and He is. Oh, I'm so thankful for a God that loves us, aren't you? Thankful for a God that saved this unworthy sinner. (laughs) So thankful that though I deserve to be damned to hell forever, He chose to save me through His Son. Today we're going to get an overview of some of the most difficult challenges and tensions that arise in the minds of a believer who understands the sovereignty of God. We're going to do it in 25-30 minutes. Let's dive in. The passage breaks down this way. There are three main sections that Paul uses logically to address the tension that arises from God's sovereign election of some to salvation. First, the painful intention introduced in verses 1 to 6. The sovereign faithfulness of God explained in 6 to 13. The righteousness of God defended in nine, fourteen to 18. Let's walk through it real quickly. Again, I wouldn't have picked this one, but God in His sovereignty has us through it, going through it. Let's look at Romans 9. 1. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory and the covenants, and the giving of the law and the temple sacrifices." services and the promises who are the fathers from whom is the Christ according to the flesh who is over all God blessed forever amen but it is not as though the word of God has failed now it's important for us to understand this chapter is a call to rightly understand God is his in his proper position as the sovereign God is faithful In his providential promises. In verses 1 to 13, that's what we're going to see. God is righteous in all his ways. In verses 14 to 18. Even if we don't understand everything that God is doing. We can know that God is faithful to his promises. And he's trustworthy. He's righteous. And we can trust him. Ultimately, the summary of this chapter is. God is God, and we are his children by grace alone, so we must trust him. I'll say it again. This is the key right here. Listen closely. God is God, and we are his children by grace alone, so we must trust him. That's it. Let's start with the painful tension in verses 1 to 6. In this section... There's two truths. What are these two main truths that lie in tension? It's verses 1 to 5. First, verses 1 to 3 is the first tension. God's firstborn are in a perilous position. We see this in the first three verses. Look closely. If there was one area where Paul would have been under attack, it would be his words concerning his own kinsmen, Israel. Think about this for a second. Paul was... An Israelite, wasn't he? But where was, did he end up often preaching? To the Gentiles. He was preaching, preaching the Jewish Messiah to Gentiles. He was putting down their Jewish works-based religion that they had turned the law into. And he was considered a traitor by his own people. His own people hated him. They wanted him dead. Everywhere he went, the Jews would spread the message and he would be chased out of the city. Most of the time because of the Jews. His own kinsmen. They hated him. So Paul introduces a defense here at the beginning of this of his love for his kinsmen. At the same time, he shows this perilous position that the majority of Israel is in. Paul starts with a threefold Prelude to his defense. He says, I'm telling you the truth in Christ. Paul explains that what I feel for my kinsmen is truth in Christ. He says, I'm not lying. I'm not deceiving my audience. I'm not deceiving the world. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. That is, my conscience is clean. The Spirit knows I'm groaning. The Spirit knows I love them. The Spirit himself testifies with my conscience that I love these kinsmen of mine that hate me. I love them dearly. Next, Paul reveals his heart towards his own people. Notice it states, Paul states he is very sorrowful towards his kinsmen because of their status as separated from God. Notice his, the depth of his concern. Literally, you could translate this, My sorrow is great, and unceasing grief is in my heart. Now, folks, I don't know about you, but we don't normally say, Hmm, I think I'm going to apply that to my life. How many of you would apply that passage to your life? Yeah, you know what? I think I need to have more Sorrow. I need to have some unceasing grief. How many of us walk around like that all the time? If we did, people would think what? There's something wrong with you. There's something wrong with you. Even in the church, isn't that true? If anybody weeps in the church, it's like, what's wrong with you? You're not trusting Jesus? You got a problem. Hmm. You can you can imagine. The Apostle Paul comes into Grace Bible Church and everybody says, "What's wrong with that dude?" You know what it's like, right? Now by the way, this unceasing grief and sorrow is not over himself. That would be a dramatic difference, right? got an unceasing sorrow and unceasing grief and great sorrow for others condition not his own literally my sorrow is great and unceasing grief is in my heart continuously while there's obviously great joy in knowing christ and that he died for us right brethren And that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Romans 8, he just finished it, right? Yet what does 9 talk about? He's got unceasing grief. And sorrow. Here's the guy that tells us to do what in in, in Philippians 4? Rejoice in the Lord always. Is he contradicting himself here? No, he isn't. Listen, beloved, sorrow and joy are both parts of the life of a believer. In fact, if you can live in this planet and see countless people dying and going to hell and be happy all the time, there's something wrong with you. I'm just being honest. Yes? How is it that the Apostle Paul states that he rejoices in the Lord always... ...but then he says he has unceasing grief? I think the answer is is because as his eyes are on others... ...he sees their desperate condition. He knows he's okay... ...because Christ is good... ...and all satisfying. But when he looks out at the world and sees their condition... He is grieved to the point of great sorrow. This is a tension in all of our hearts, isn't it? I, I had somebody even say it today. I think it was Luke. Where are you at, Luke? Luke Jordan, where are you at? Luke Jordan, where are you? I just saw you. He just walked, out. Just walked out. Luke, yeah, too much... <laughs> Amen, Wanda, Wes. Amen, Wes. Well, Luke Luke said it to me. He said it at the beginning. At the beginning, I said, how you doing? I said, man, you know how hard that question is to answer? <laughs> Isn't it, beloved? But that's the question we like, don't we? I like it. i got to admit it. How you doing? How you doing? And, then, and when I say better than I deserve, everybody say, yeah, you're just being pious. Now, I'm rejoicing in the Lord, but grieving continuously. What? That's me. Maybe a new line, right? We're going to all start saying that. I'm rejoicing in the Lord, but grieving continuously over the world I live in. This is very important preparation here for all of us as we deal with these difficult issues. Listen closely. No born-again believer rejoices over the damnation of souls. Nobody. None of us. That's why I think sometimes Calvinist or Reformed people are often labeled a certain way. They're labeled these unloving, un caring, hard-hearted, sovereignty-of-God people. Maybe it's because we're often showing one side of the picture instead of allowing ourselves to be transparent enough to say, it doesn't change the fact that I'm grieving over the lost. No one who understands the justice of God, though, properly rejoices over souls getting what they deserve, right? How many of you love the subject of hell? I don't love it. I know it's good. I know it's right. I know it's what God ordained, and I know God is just, but I sure don't rejoice in it. It brings sadness to my heart. Does it you? As a matter of fact, this grief is what drives us to continue to proclaim the gospel, doesn't it? You know, going out there on Thursdays from 4 to 6 over at USF, you've got to admit, it's not always easy. As a matter of fact, most of the time it isn't easy. As you start talking to people about the gospel, you know, they most of the time look at you like you're an absolute wacko. Had one young lady tell me that this week. You are crazy. Get it. Understand. Grieving, isn't it? But beloved, if we get Romans 9, then we will be ready for Romans 10. Well, we will go out and proclaim the gospel. We understand. God's sovereignty does not mean that human responsibility is eliminated finally we see Paul expresses the depth of his desire in this first section by saying for I wish that I could be anathema for the sake of my kinsmen beloved do you understand what he's saying here he's saying I wish that I could be eternally damned forever So that my kinsmen could all come to Christ and be delivered. Now, Paul knows he can't be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He knows that. He knows it's a a fact. It's God's promise. However, because of the tension he's expressing through this phrase exactly how much he loves them. And I believe he's telling the truth. And he is not lying. And his conscience is bearing witness by the Holy Spirit. That he would literally lay down his salvation for his kinsmen. How many of you would do that for anybody in this planet? I'm way too selfish. How about you guys? I think, I think way too high of even myself, even after Christ. Am I the only one in the room? But this is how Paul loves his kinsmen. Despite their unelect status, as many of them are. So now Paul shifts to the dramatic tension. Look at verse 4 and 5. God's own were promised worship producing promises. Promise worship producing promises. In verse 4 it says, Who are Israelites? To whom belong... This is why I'm preaching the whole passage right here. To whom belong the adoption as sons and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the temple service. And the promises who are the fathers. And from whom is the Christ according to the flesh. Who is over all. God blessed forever. Amen. What is this? These are all promises that produce what in Paul? Worship. By the time he gets to the end of the list, he's doing what? He's worshiping God. And they were promised these Amazing privileges and blessings. And yet most of Israel is doing what? Rejecting God. Rejecting the Messiah. They are Israel. And they are adopted as sons. You could translate that literally. They are adopted as sons. We read it in Exodus 4, didn't we? In Exodus 4 it says, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, Pharaoh, let my son go that he may serve me. So wait a second. Israel is the adopted sons? What were we told in Romans 8? We are the adopted sons. And that our final adoption is coming, right? And what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to identify with the fact that we are a child of God. We're supposed to identify with the fact that we are going to get final adoption one day. But what is Israel being told? And what were they told? You are my adopted sons. You're my firstborn. And yet what is happening to Israel? Most of them aren't adopted. Most of them won't see glory. Why would he trade his salvation for people that already have salvation? He wouldn't do that. Most of them don't have it. So what's going on here? He's doing exactly what I tried to do at the beginning of my sermon. I was trying to build tension. I was trying to get you where you needed to be to understand exactly what he was going to discuss. You needed to be in that moment of going, This is not easy. That's what he's doing. He's dealing with this issue, he's bringing it up and saying, Let's talk about this tension. Thankfully, in the next section, we see he answers it. He gives an answer to the tension. Look at it in verse six. But it's not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, nor are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have... A son what's the answer the answer is real clear not all Israel is Israel not all those who are born Jews are real true spiritual Israel that's his point it's not complicated is it y'all can see how it logically flows right it's not I don't have to give you a lot of dictation on this you can see it right And he gives two examples. The first example being Abraham's two sons, Ishmael and Isaac. It was interesting. I was talking to two Muslims today, or not today, but Thursday. And they said, God took Ishmael up to Moriah to sacrifice him. I went. Nope. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the firstborn was who? Ishmael. But the firstborn didn't get the blessing. It was the secondborn that got the blessing. Isaac. Abraham took Isaac up onto the Mount of Moriah. You do that, if you take away that, you take away the whole point of the whole Bible. That the secondborn is really the firstborn. That is a theme of the entire Scriptures. It says... Jesus, the second Adam, is the firstborn among many brethren. Then he gives Isaac two twin sons, Jacob and Esau. Who came out first? Esau. Who was secondborn? Jacob. How does God choose? Well, he chooses. Based on his free will. His choice. And it's not based on some flesh. It's not based on who was the mom and the father. It's not based on that. But in Isaac, your descendants will be named. Being a child of God is determined by God's predetermined promise. What does that do for all of us in the room? That are believers in Jesus. It should just humble you to death. It should bring you to the end of yourself. You should be going, why me then? Being a child of God is accomplished through a miracle too. We know this because what happens? Sarah has a baby and she's older than 80 and so is Abraham. Many 80 year olds have babies? No, that's not normal. But it was a miracle that brought Isaac into the world. Is the tension arising in here, folks? Well, there is some new tension, isn't there? What's the tension? The new tension that's arising. Not all Israel is Israel. And it's not based on what we do. At the same time, the new tension is here. If you were in first century Israel, it would be, the word is saying the promises of God are not for everybody. The word is saying many people of Israel are condemned. The word is saying that Abraham's children are not all going to receive the promises. The word is saying that it is up to God and His miraculous work. This is only attention if we make man owed something from God. Now, I want you to listen to me closely. Yes, it's a truth and it hurts and it's painful, but it's not a contradiction to who God is. Interestingly, this is so applica- applicable to us here in America, isn't it? We live in a country and in a time that everyone thinks they deserve better. They deserve favor. Yes? And they don't even have the promises of the Bible to claim. I'm an American. And the Bible says that means I should be blessed. Listen to me. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible doesn't say that. I'm sorry. I know it's 9-11. I do want to honor, you know, God has blessed our country. Right? Good God. Thankful. But we must understand something. We don't deserve the blessing. We don't deserve what we have. We deserve judgment. Stop listening to the politicians. Maybe just read your Bible more. You don't deserve health care or money or lower taxes Anything. You don't deserve any of it. Here's what we all deserve. What? Hell. We get that one down, we'll be okay. Right? We all deserve hell. But God is being merciful to us. God chose Jacob over Esau. Both men were children of Isaac. Both had the same mother. Both were born on the same day. Both were sinners both did, uh, did not deserve a blessing. Jacob was a pretty bad dude, wasn't he? He lied to his own parents, put some skins on him, to his own dad. They were twins, but God chose the second born over the first born. In fact, he had determined the older to serve the younger. And the offspring of these two men a thousand years later showed God's divine favor was on Israel, not Jacob. That's a fact. So does God keep his word? The answer is, emphatically, yes. But at this point, Paul's logic hits a whole new tension. I don't have time to answer it completely. I'm just going to read it and we'll get get there. If God... Is the one who determines who is saved. If God is the one who saves, then can God be accused of being unfair in his choice? Can God be accused of being unrighteous if he doesn't choose everyone? Can God be accused of being unfair if he chooses a minority over a majority? That's where we're at. And Paul gives a very clear answer. And here it is. Verse 14 to 23. The righteousness of God defended. Real quick. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion... So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole world. So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Beloved, the answer is pretty clear, isn't it? It's all up to God's free will. That's it. God chooses who will be his children. Now, if this enrages you, if you're angry at that right now, I just want to warn you. I want to warn you. He is God, and you are not. You are the creation. He is the creator. At the same time, I want you to know that it does grieve me at times. The grief stays, but the humble submission is also there. Both are true. And for the one in the room right now that's asking the question, am I God's elect? I want to address you. I don't know who you are, but I want to address you. I have good news for you. God sent His Son into the world to die for sinners. You are a sinner. You're born a sinner. I was born a sinner. If right now you understand that you're a sinner and that you deserve judgment and you are feeling the weight of that judgment that you deserve judgment, if right now you feel that, exactly. If you're feeling that weight, and you hear this glorious message that God sent His Son to die for you, and you say, My hope is Christ. My only hope is Him. I want to turn from my sins and trust in Christ and give my life to Him. He is my all in all. I want to live for Him and trust Him. Even if it doesn't make complete sense to me, I know I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. You call out to Him. I can tell you this. That if that is your heart, God is already working in you. You very well could be one of those children. Cry out to Him. He doesn't look at you and go, "Nah, not going to listen to you. He works in your heart to cause you to see the depth of your sin. And then you cry out to Him. And He will save you. And then you will look back and say, Man, it was God that was working in me. I came to this church to hear that message so that I could be saved too. Beloved, for all of us that have trusted in that message, we hang on, we trust in him, don't we? We grieve of the world that we live in. It drives us to obey him. By sharing Him with everybody. And it gets our eyes off of ourselves, doesn't it? A chapter like this should leave all of us right where we should always remain, which is below Christ, (laughs) submitting to Him, honoring Him, because He is worthy of being made much of by His brethren. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your grace and kindness to us. Thank You for this intense passage that shows us who is God and who is not. We understand that, God, we are not You. We are not sovereign. It is by Your grace that You draw all all men to Yourself. Lord, help us to trust You. Help us to lean on You. Father, You are the sovereign. We are the creature. Grieve us with the lost. Drive us to our knees. Comfort us by the Spirit. Empower us and embolden us to proclaim the glory of the gospel.